Welcome back to Out of the Cold, the podcast that dives deep into unsolved and solved cold cases in North Texas. I'm Deanna Boyd. So today we're exploring the unsolved 2008 murder of Ray Hernandez, a Dallas County juvenile probation officer who was stabbed in his home in Grand Prairie, his house then set on fire. Ray came from a large family. His parents, Dolores and Raymond P. Hernandez, had six children, four girls and two boys. And Ray was the fourth born and the first son. Now Dolores says even from a young age, it was clear that Ray was different from his siblings. We used to call him, you know, like a little old man at, at a very young age because he was precise about everything. He had to be just, just right. And that's, he grew up to be like that. His house was always spotless, clean, organized. He was organized. Now, did he inherit that from you or from his father? Well, or? No, not really. I mean, I was organized, but with six children, how organized can you get? <laughs> Richard, the baby of the family, was seven years younger than Ray. A little too much of an age gap for them to be especially close, but Richard remembers his brother often watching over him. Well, I mean, he babysat us a lot, watched us whenever the parents were working. You know, we'd get in trouble, we'd fight, go outside or watch TV. But then once he graduated, he was just at college and moved out. So we didn't keep in touch like brothers usually would. Now, Ray did not treat his college years like a lot of young people do. He wasn't about partying and living it up. No, Ray was on a mission. From an early age, Ray had decided he wanted to go into some form of law enforcement. His father was, he was a security officer and he went to school to get this degree to be a security officer, you know. So my husband was, you know, he couldn't really be a policeman. He tried, but back then there, there were regulations were too strict. He was too short for one thing. They said he was about nine, but they thought he was too short. So Ray's father settled for working part-time security for Dr. Pepper and later Vanderwert's Dairy, in addition to other jobs to provide for his large family. My son, I guess, he took a little bit from that. I, mean, I wanted him to be a lawyer or something, but he chose that. Now Ray was already taking classes at what was then known as Tarrant County Junior College, while still finishing his last year at Haltom High School. His mother said she thinks his desire to work with kids grew from the time Ray had volunteered at the Tarrant County Juvenile Detention Center to earn credits for a class. Ray's heart broke as he met child after child, all in trouble with the law, many from poverty-stricken and troubled homes, and he wanted to help. He felt sorry for the kids. He made the mistake of giving phone number to one kid, and then they said, no, you're not supposed to do that. More schooling would follow for Ray. He loved to study and learn. Dolores said her son attended Stephen F. Austin in Nacogdoches, but left after his roommate seemed more interested in partying than studying. He would later go to North Texas State University, where he earned his Bachelor of Arts in Criminal Justice in 1987. Then he went to Sam Houston State University in Huntsville, earning his Master's in Criminal Justice and Criminology in 1992. All he did most of his lifetime is go to school. My husband said, that boy needs to stop going to school and get a real job. But Hernandez had been working throughout his schooling. He had no grants, no scholarships, but managed to put himself through school on his own. 
He always had a part-time job, sometimes multiple jobs. He worked hard and to get where he was and for him to just, you know, that's what gets me right there. In 1988, Ray began working with the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. Over the next seven years, he worked in a variety of roles in the prison. He was a classification case manager, then a parole officer, including in the intensive supervision program, and finally a diagnostic intake coordinator. And in October 1996, Ray would join the Dallas County Juvenile Department, working over the next decade as a community liaison officer and later a probation officer in their intake section. For Ray, this was a dream job. He was finally working with kids. Mike Griffiths, interim executive director for the Dallas County Juvenile Department, says Ray excelled at his job. On several occasions, he was honored with the department's Caught in the Act Award, a recognition given to employees who went above and beyond. He'd worked in various capacities, among his favorite as an in-school probation diversion officer. Griffiths said a grant enabled the department to put probation officers like Ray in schools in a non-traditional role aimed at keeping kids out of the juvenile system. They have a, a real neat concept where you have health department, you have a psychologist, and you have an office. You know, we had a probation officer there that kind of acted as a case manager to, to make sure youth that were on that at-risk spectrum uh, were diverted away from our systems. He had a soft spot in his heart for those who, because of their home lives, found that an uphill battle. Christmas, uh, sometimes he would ask me to make extra cookies or make a bunch of cookies so he could take them to the kids because the mother, you wouldn't believe it. These kids don't know. They have any idea what Christmas is or because they have parents that are drug addicts, alcoholics, and they don't care for these kids at all. Did he make a difference? Notes left by former students on his obituary guest book show the impact he had. One student wrote, I feel if it wasn't for Mr. Hernandez encouraging us and not giving up, a lot of us wouldn't have made it. Another wrote he considered Ray a second father. You just don't know how much you put a big change in my life. Because of you, I know I can do anything now. I will make you very happy with my work to come. Juliana Stevens had worked with Ray in intake, assessing arrested teens as they were brought to the detention center to determine if they should be released to their parents or detained. Be warned, the audio isn't great because of a bad phone connection. But he'll like do too much. I'm like, Ray, slow down. They're going to expect us all to do all of that. You know? <laughs> he raised the bar. Definitely raised the bar. Ray also taught criminal justice at Mountain View College, a community college in Dallas. Now, despite all this work on his plate, Ray still made time to watch over his mother. You see, Dolores and Ray's father had gotten divorced in the late 80s. And as the oldest son, Ray kind of took it upon himself to take on the role of man of the house, even though he no longer lived there. He'd visit his mom every two weeks, make sure she had everything she might need, once, he insisted on getting her kitchen remodeled, buying her a new dishwasher and oven. He loved to work in the yard, though. That was his way of, I guess, energizing himself because he had so much on his mind with the job he had. He'd come over here, he trimmed bushes, he cut the yard, he did everything. And it was a given Ray would call his mother at least once a week. On Friday night, he would call me every Friday night evening. Just to check in? Uh, just to check and see how I was doing. But on Friday, August 8th, 2008, 
That phone call from Ray never came. At 6.15 p.m. that night, a neighbor of Ray's called 911, reporting a fire at Ray's house. Grand Prairie cold case detective Alan Frizzell described what firefighters found when they pulled up to Ray's single-story brick house in the 2600 block of Channing Drive off Great Southwest Parkway and just south of Interstate 20. Fire department arrived, they saw heavy smoke coming from the open front door of the residence. They immediately went into the house, they saw some blood around the front door and then went on into the kitchen and found the deceased male in the kitchen. The fire was contained to a portion of the kitchen and was quickly put out. The man dead on the floor would later be identified as Ray. The flames never reached Ray's body, but it was abundantly clear that Grand Prairie was dealing with a homicide. When found, Ray was laying face down on the kitchen floor with stab wounds to his body. Police found blood in other places of the house, including Ray's bedroom, leading Frizzell to believe that Ray had tried to escape his attacker before ultimately being killed in the kitchen. There was blood on the front door, as if Ray had tried to open it, and even blood on the unarmed security alarm panel, an indication that Ray had tried to hit the panic button. But apparently did. We didn't get an alarm call there. Frizzell said the killer had used knives from Ray's own kitchen. In fact, police would find several bloodied knives on the floor, most with their blades broken or bent. One part of a knife was found in Ray's bedroom. It's just not uncommon for a knife to break when somebody's getting stabbed because it hits bone or, you know, whatever. In all, the medical examiner's office would count 46 stab wounds, mostly in the upper chest, back, and torso area. Ray had clearly put up a fight for his life. He also had six defensive wounds on his hands where he had tried to block the knife. That multitude of, of stab wounds, what, what does that tell to, investigators? To me, from my training, that means it's a personal attack and it's, it's, it's rage or emotion involved. Um, when it's just a random run-of-the-mill murder, stabbing or whatever, maybe see one or two or three. But when you, it's personal when you have that many. So when Ray doesn't call his mother that evening, as was his routine, she gets understandably worried. And I call over there, and I call, and I call, and he rang, and he rang, and he rang. Finally, somebody answered the phone. They want to know who I was, and I want to know who he was. And then, well, who are you? I said, I'm Mrs. Hernandez. I'm Ray's mother. Who are you? And that's when they told me that was a, it was another detective that was there. He said, you need to meet me at the Grand Prairie Police Department, and we need to talk to you. So the detective doesn't tell Dolores what's going on. I mean, that's not the kind of news they're going to deliver over the phone. So Dolores' mind is racing as she calls her youngest son, Richard, telling him they need to go to the Grand Prairie Police Department. I knew something had happened, but I didn't think that this would have happened. I thought, well, maybe he got in trouble, or maybe somebody pushed him too far, and he hit back. That's what I was thinking, that he was in trouble. But then I thought, what are they doing in his house? Why wouldn't they let me talk to him? And Richard, we drove like, I don't know, like 100 miles an hour all the way to Grand Prairie. Once they get there, Dolores says detectives insisted on first talking to her son. As she waits, she's only growing more concerned, more convinced that something really bad has happened. Richard said detectives filled him in on the fatal attack that had occurred at Ray's house. They wanted to know if I knew about anything or if I knew his friends. I said, I didn't know anybody. Once he moved out, he didn't tell us much. They also wanted to know if Richard wanted to be the one to break the news to his mother that Ray was dead. Richard declined. 
He says he was in just too much shock. But he went out and he got his mother, bringing her back to the room. And he sat with Dolores as investigators told her that her oldest son was dead. Everybody who'd have been there, they would have heard me screaming my head off. Richard would drive the next day with two of his sisters to Temple, where their father was living at the time. The girls had wanted to call their father with the news, but Richard feared his dad would rush to be with them and possibly get in a wreck. He knew something was wrong whenever I came to tell. So a couple days after Ray's murder, after police took down the yellow tape and released their control over the crime scene, the family went to see Ray's home to get some of his belongings. But the house hadn't been cleaned yet. Richard said he went in first, saw the bloody aftermath of his brother's murder, then came back out and insisted that his mother not go in. His dad, however, would not be kept out. Sometimes I wish I would have held him out. Seeing what he saw probably wouldn't affect him if he wouldn't have seen it. But he was stubborn. I want to go in. I was in the war or the military, blah, blah. So, you know, it's like that's different from those guys and your own son. They spent only about 10 minutes inside. They would not return again until after they were assured the house had been cleaned up, bringing with them a U-Haul to pack up all of Ray's possessions. For some reason, the detective said something about getting all his things out of there because the person tried to start a fire in the kitchen and they were afraid that maybe he might come back and finish the job. So who would want to kill Ray and why? Robbery seems an unlikely motive. The only thing police could confirm was missing from the house was a DVD player from the living room's entertainment center. In photos taken by police inside the house that night, you can see the cables dangling down from where the DVD had been connected. Family members say they also never found two class rings that Ray had owned. Now the fire had been started in the kitchen by someone placing items on the stove, then turning on the burners, an apparent attempt to destroy evidence. Before the fire, neighbors had seen a car parked in Ray's driveway and then later leave. It was a pretty distinctive car, they thought it was a purple Dodge Stratus. I mean, like TCU purple. And it wasn't the first time they'd seen the car parked outside Ray's house. At some point, the car comes back and again parks in the driveway. This time, the witnesses see the driver get out and walk in between the homes of Ray and his neighbor's house, apparently to jump the back fence. About five to 10 minutes later, this man walks back out from in between the house, and this time appears to be carrying something. He gets back into the purple car and drives away. Shortly after they saw the fire, and that was described as a, a young African-American male. And um, they had said they'd seen him before, but don't know him, just you know, coming and going. So to me, that establishes some sort of, it wasn't a stranger crime. It was some sort of a relationship that they knew each other you know, in some aspect. So Frizzell believes this man had killed Ray on his first visit to the house that night, then left, cleaned himself up, and came back to set the fire. Stealing the DVD player may have just been his way of trying to make investigators think it was a robbery. But the killer did not succeed in covering his tracks. In fact, police would find the killer had left behind a vital clue, his own blood on one of the knives that he'd used to stab Ray. It always happens, every time. When you have a stabbing, somebody cuts themselves because their hand's slippery and slides down the blade when it hits the bones and they always cut themselves. So in a case like this, the number of potential suspects seems endless. I mean, first of all, there's Ray's job as a juvenile probation officer. Despite their young age, some of the kids coming through the juvenile system are just plain dangerous. Could one of these probationers that Ray had supervised become angry at him and kill them? Or what about his job mentoring at-risk youth? 
Ray never spoke of having any trouble with kids he supervised or mentored to his family. But then again, Dolores says, her son rarely talked about his work. Dolores said she never worried that Ray might be in danger because of his job. She'd always been more worried about her son Richard than Ray. He was very careful. He was very cautious. So, no, it didn't never enter my mind that, that something would happen to him because of his job or, or whatever. He never entered, like I said, this is the one that I worried about. He never entered that something like this would happen to him. Uh, and he, like I said, he never discussed a lot of the things that he was doing with me. I don't know, because he didn't want me to worry or he just didn't feel comfortable telling me. Ray's former colleague in probation, Juliana, said it never even crossed her mind that Ray's job could have something to do with his death. She said Ray was cautious, almost to the point of being paranoid. Because they worked the night shift in an area of Dallas that was somewhat shady, she remembers that he would give her advice all the time, like what to do if someone tried to approach her at a gas station. She said that made his murder even more of a mystery. I lost my, my ground there for a while whenever I learned what had happened. Not only was he overly cautious, he, he didn't trust anybody. Detective Frizzell said investigators spent a lot of time digging into Ray's job, the kids he supervised and mentored. They even sought DNA samples from a few to compare it with the DNA left at the scene, but it yielded no matches. The detective said investigators also learned that Ray had been researching things that appeared outside his personal scope. He was interested in like the rap scene and, and the, for some reason the drug culture that came with that. He would get out and do research on rap and drugs and so he was kind of delving into that lifestyle a little bit not rapping himself but maybe more along the lines of trying to figure out the root of the problem that's leading the kids to come to him. But there's no indication that Ray was doing drugs himself Frizzell says and Juliana says she remembers Ray doing such internet research but agrees it was his way to learn about the kids with whom he was dealing and because the topics just intrigued him. Always interested in uh what was going on behind somebody's mind. You know, he's a, a little bit of a mentalist, to tell you the truth. She said the screening process of juvenile suspects would routinely take probation officers anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour. But for Ray, it took longer. So he, he would take his time. I think that he enjoyed gathering information, just learning about them. Juliana says the way Ray treated the kids he worked with makes her skeptical that one would ever try to harm him. The kids they handled, she says, could sometimes be agitated and unpredictable. Many were angry at police and would think the probation officers and intake were just more police officers. But Ray had a knack for de-escalating these encounters, calming these kids. And the way he treated our clients, so respectful, never demeaning. She says the only people that she knew who didn't like Ray were colleagues who seemed to have a problem at how good he was at his job. He works really hard, you know, he has high expectations and he expects the same from everybody, you know, so some people would get rubbed the wrong way. Minor stuff, never anything major. With their investigation leading to no solid suspects, investigators entered the DNA profile into CODIS, the national database that compares DNA profiles obtained from biological evidence found at crime scenes against those of offenders arrested for, charged with, or convicted of certain crimes. Again, nothing. Dolores Hernandez said she watched with frustration as she heard about other murders happening in North Texas that were later solved. Why wasn't her son solved yet? 
I kept thinking they just weren't working hard enough in my son's case because he was Hispanic. That's what came to my mind. She said one of her daughters, who was serving as the family contact for Grand Prairie investigators, assured her that wasn't the case. So as Frizzell walks me through the investigation one recent afternoon, it's clear investigators have gone to great lengths to try to solve the case through the years. And at times, it seems they were so close to solving it. In late 2011, CODIS would make a link, not to an offender, but what's known as a case-to-case link. It linked the DNA left behind at the murder scene to two unsolved 2011 sexual assaults of prostitutes out of Fort Worth, located about 30 minutes west of Grand Prairie. So now investigators know that the man that killed Ray isn't just a murderer. He's also at least a two-time rapist. The first rape had occurred in February 2011 and involved a 37-year-old woman. She was walking northbound on Elgin when a Jeep pulled up next to her. Suspect pulled out a gun, ordered her into the vehicle, and said she assaulted her. Got DNA. The unknown DNA from the murder matched unknown DNA from this rape. The second rape happened in April of 2011. A 21-year-old woman told police she had just left the Classy Lady Club, a dive bar off Rosedale Street in East Fort Worth, and was walking north on Tyranny Avenue about 9 p.m. when she was approached by three black males. She recognized one of the men as someone with whom she'd once gone to school and who she knew by a nickname. The woman said she either fainted or passed out. Next thing she knows, she wakes up on a bus bench at Stall Cup and Ramey Avenue, and it's 3 a.m. the next day. Her clothes are torn, her hair's messed up. A passing motorist stops to see if she needs help after noticing her stumbling. When the woman says she's been sexually assaulted, the motorist lets her use a phone to call 911. So the victim in the second rape apparently stops cooperating with police at some point, and the sexual assault investigation stalls. But when Fort Worth and Grand Prairie police learn about the CODIS link, Fort Worth police again turned their focus to the April sexual assault case. Now in that case, police actually were able to obtain two separate DNA profiles through semen found during the woman's sexual assault exam. One of those matched the DNA profile obtained in Ray's murder case. The other did not. In the profile that did not match, the CODIS database ended up linking it to an offender. The Fort Worth police tracked down that man, and it turns out that he actually had a kid with a victim, and the two had just had consensual sex earlier on the day of the rape. Just in case, police did tests comparing him to the profile obtained in Ray's case, but it wasn't a match. So the big question is, who did the other DNA found belong to? Now, a previous Grand Prairie detective working Ray's murder case had come up with a possible lead involving a nickname, the same nickname the April rape victim knew one of her attackers by. The detective is able to come up with a full name for this nickname and tracks down the April rape victim to show her a photo lineup that includes the suspect. She picks that same man out as one of her attackers. It seems promising. So hopeful, Fort police get an arrest warrant for this man and a search warrant for his DNA. He denies involvement, and later DNA comparisons confirm he wasn't a match for the DNA in the rape or murder case. As a result, he's never formally charged with the rape, and investigators find themselves back at square one.
But since the victim picked him out as one of her three attackers, Frizzell says he's still trying to run down possible associates of the man. Grand Prairie police try other steps to get the killer identified. They pay to have DNA phenotyping done by Virginia-based Parabon Nanolabs. Basically, it predicts a suspect's physical appearance based on DNA analysis. It can tell you the suspect's ancestry, whether they likely had dark hair or fair skin, even predict their hair and eye color and whether they had a lot of freckles or none. Parabon then creates a composite based on these predictions. Ray's killer was predicted to have brown or dark brown skin, brown or black eyes, and black hair with no freckles. Three composites were done of the man, one at age 25 with a normal body weight, another at the same age with a heavier body weight, and the last one at around age 35. The composites were shown to Ray's family and they didn't recognize the man, and later released to the media in the spring of 2017. You can view them for yourself at www.star-telegram.com backslash out of the cold. And when you guys put this out in the media, did you get any Got tips? a couple of tips, but nothing that panned out. So more recently, Grand Prairie Police tried a tool that many in the general public are only now learning about due to the highly publicized arrest in April 2018 of a man believed to be the Golden State Killer, a serial killer and rapist who terrorized California in the mid-70s to mid-80s. Grand Prairie paid a California-based company called Identifinders International to help them look for possible last names associated with Ray's murderer through genetic genealogy data. I recently talked by phone with Colleen Fitzpatrick, a forensic genealogist and the founder of Identifiers International, who helped me understand just how they help in such cold cases. So it's become really popular for people to want to learn about their ethnic origins. And there are lots of companies to help you do that. Ancestry.com, 23andMe, et cetera, et cetera. You just mail them a sample of your saliva and of course some money, and they extract your DNA from it and analyze your genetic data. So the databases held by these companies hold sometimes millions of genetic footprints from people from all over the world. And yet law enforcement typically can't access them. And I understand that. I mean, when you're spitting in a cup or swabbing your cheek to try to find out where your great-great-great-granddad came from, you probably don't want law enforcement perusing your DNA data whenever they please to see if you or maybe Uncle Jim Bob committed a crime. But can you imagine how frustrating it must also be to know such databases might just hold the key to finding out the identity of a murderer or even an unidentified John or Jane Doe, and yet you can't access them? What was developing was the forensic people were looking over the fence at all of this wonderful data that they really wished they could use, um, but they couldn't because, you know, Ancestry and those companies won't work with them. So the forensic people, you know, it was, it was bound to happen sooner or later that we would find a workaround, a legitimate workaround. You know, not working directly with those companies, but finding some other way to use some of that data, and GEDmatch gave that to us. So what is GEDmatch, you ask? Well, say you got your DNA analysis done by Ancestry.com. And with this information, you were able to find long-lost relatives whom you shared DNA markers with that you didn't even know you had. And that's cool. But what if you have unknown relatives out there who got their DNA analyzed through, say, 23andMe? Because it's a different company, you're not going to know about them through your Ancestry.com search. There's a website called GEDmatch 
where it's open to data from all the companies. It's not affiliated with any company, but it accepts data from all the companies. And it provides kind of a, um, a virtual watering hole for, so to speak, genetic genealogists or genealogists to go to to upload their data so they can work together on different things. So you can download your DNA data from Ancestry and upload it to the GEDmatch website for free. And now you can find possible relatives who also uploaded their own data to GEDmatch. Now, not everybody does that, but, you know, a growing number of people do. And GEDmatch right now is about just probably short of the million person mark, which is respectable. So in Ray's case, investigators forwarded identifiers, the killer's Y-DNA profile, to have Fitzpatrick search for last names associated with the killer's male lineage. Fitzpatrick gave me an example of a Y-DNA search she did a few years ago that ended up helping Phoenix police make an arrest of a man they believe is the city's canal killer. Brian Patrick Miller was arrested in 2015 and is still awaiting trial in the mutilation death of two young women in the early 90s who had both been abducted while riding their bikes near a Phoenix canal. Through her genealogy research, Fitzpatrick was able to tell Phoenix police that the killer they were seeking likely had the last name of Miller based on possible ancestors she uncovered along his paternal lineage. They had about many hundreds, if not 2,000, a couple of thousand names on their suspect list. And one the name Miller narrowed it down to five. Wow. And of, of those five, there was only one that could even come close. And that they went and collected a DNA sample from him, and his DNA matched the DNA at the scene of the crime. So in Ray's case, interestingly, Fitzpatrick also found out that while witness descriptions all described Ray's killer as African-American with brown to dark brown skin color, the Y-DNA shows the killer actually had a Caucasian male in his lineage, possibly as far back as a great-great-great-grandfather. And while she didn't find an exact match to the killer's Y-DNA profile, she did find near matches that were associated with three surnames, the most prominent being Lacey, but also Ratliff and Sheets. When I first got this case, I went through the book, back and forth, back and forth, and trying to find those names and didn't find them, obviously. When you're dealing with genealogy, there's always what Fitzpatrick refers to as wiggle room. People who, for various reasons, didn't have the surnames indicated by their lineage, maybe because of adoption or an illegitimate birth. So Grand Prairie's search for Ray's killer goes on. Frizzell is confident it's just a matter of time before the crime is solved. That's why this case is so promising, is because, number, like I told the family yesterday when I met with them, number one, there's DNA. Eventually, we're going to get to our society where everybody's DNA is going to be in CODIS. I think it's coming where, to, you know, that, instead of fingerprints, we're going to go to DNA, obviously, because it's, a, you know, not, unless you're an identical twin, it's not going to match. So we're going to get this case solved. Sadly, Ray's father died this past February without ever finding out who killed his son. I just was hoping they'd solve it before my dad passed, but they never did. I hope they do it before I go. Dolores says her son is in her thoughts every day. She says her other children don't understand why she remains so immersed in her grief. But you never get over the loss of your own child. They don't understand, you know. It's 10 years, Mom. You need to get over it. That's it, because it hasn't happened to them. I hope it happens. If you have information about the murder of Ray Hernandez, please call Grand Prairie Police Detective Alan Frizzell 
at 972-237-8795. Thank you for listening. Check back next month for a new episode of Out of the Cold. Out of the Cold is produced by Steve Wilson, edited by Steve Kaufman, and written and narrated by me, Deanna Boyd.